This morning we are going to begin uh, a new shorter series through passages in the book of Proverbs. And of course, when you do that, you need to start at the beginning. So we'll be starting in Proverbs uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, before we begin this morning, I want us to think about uh, the difference between uh, knowledge and operational knowledge. You know, in other words, we can know theoretically about something, but do we know how to put it into practice? A good illustration of this is driving. Now, many of us take driving for granted, but here's something that I noticed as my children were growing up, that there is a difference between knowing where you're going and just listening to Google tell you how to get there. And the difference is being aware of landmarks and surroundings and what things look like where you turn or remembering that sort of thing. And I have only thought about this because a lot of young people I know have gotten lost uh, whenever there's something that keeps them from going the way Google tells them to go. And uh, oftentimes it's a, a little bit befuddling. Where it's funny is when they were going from school to home, you know, two places that they had been, uh, you know, many, many times. But see, that's the difference between theoretically knowing how to get where you're going and actually knowing how to get where you're going. In some ways, whenever we consider the subject of wisdom, you know, that helps us think about what wisdom is like. There is knowledge that I know facts, but there's wisdom that I know how to use it in different situations. And I can't think of a better subject, to be honest with you. I mean, we are in a arena right now in our current, you know, sort of life zone that we're in where we know a lot of facts, but it's hard to know what you should do. And that's where we need wisdom. And so the Bible is full of wisdom. Uh, there are actually uh, three books of wisdom. Uh, when you look at them, you've got Proverbs, which is probably the most famous of all. And then, of course, you have Ecclesiastes, which has a very different tone. And then you have the book of Job. Proverbs is giving the basic, it's kind of like the Wisdom 101 class, uh, Ecclesiastes is the 201 class where everything you thought you knew in 101, you find out you need to nuance and learn even more. And Job is like 301 where you realize sometimes it just goes right out the window. And, uh, but all of them are trying to understand how to use what we know as the situations around us change. But today we are looking at Proverbs. Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Uh, the text is printed for you in your bulletin, but I always encourage you to grab a copy of God's Word as we look at other parts of it, uh, whether electronically or in print, uh, and either way, to listen uh, and that we may hear the Word of the Lord. Proverbs 1.1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, and righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. When we study it together, uh, we need to ask for God's help. Oh Lord, we do want to know your wisdom. 
We want to be taught. But Lord, we know that there are many things that keep us from learning and growing in wisdom. One is just our own distractions. That we've got many things that we think about, and it is hard to stay focused on the teachings of your word and your spirit. Oh Lord, we pray that you will help us be focused this morning. Oh Lord, we know also we often don't learn wisdom because we have a hardness of heart or we have an assumption about things the way they are and we're not open to what you have to teach us. And so, Lord, we pray that you will soften our hearts. Sometimes, oh Lord, we don't learn wisdom because the teacher, Lord, is deficient. Oh Lord, we know you are not deficient. But may your Spirit help me, the one who teaches, to teach your word in a way that your people can hear and learn, and that you might receive glory. For we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. As we start out in the book of Proverbs, we see that here is an introduction. Uh, it really is written very much like that. It's giving an overview of what uh, wisdom is about and what it's for. And so it's helpful for us. It's also helpful for us to realize when we come to wisdom literature, it's different than other parts of Scripture. For instance, if you're in a narrative portion of Scripture, like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, and John somewhat, even though John is a different kind of narrative, there you see someone telling a story about how God interacted with history and his people and how those people responded. And the narrative tells you that in Scripture. And then, of course, you have letters that are written, like the Apostle Peter, when he wrote to the church. He wrote on the basis of a relationship, direct things that they should know and that they should do. And when he was writing in this way as an apostle, he was writing the, the Word of God. This was what they should do. There wasn't any uh, gray area about it. You do this and you don't do that. The Proverbs are a little different in the sense that they give us instruction but it is situational instruction. It's instruction to help us in different parts of our lives. The Proverbs, this wisdom that it teaches, is presupposing an understanding of absolute principles that are always true and always to be applied in every situation, and that is the law. Now, of course, the summary of the law we find in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. It, we call it the Ten Commandments. And that's the summary, you know, and that is sort of the bedrock underneath uh, what we're going to read here in Proverbs, you know, so this is what we know is right and wrong, but how do we put that into operation in our life? That's what the Proverbs is going to help us with. It's going to give us guidance. Now, we want to look at three things from this text uh, this morning. One, we want to ask, what does wisdom offer us? Why should we be interested in studying this book and biblical wisdom? Uh, secondly, we want to ask the question, who is wisdom for? In other words, who's the intended audience for this information? And lastly, we want to be thinking about what is the foundation of wisdom? What is the guiding principle of everything we'll learn in wisdom? And so this is what this text tells us. So first of all, what does wisdom offer? So this is kind of like the course description, if you will, of this course called Proverbs. What is the course description? One, it says that it will give you knowledge there in verse 2. It will give you knowledge. Now, knowledge is a good thing to have. 
Ignorance is a bad thing to have. What is knowledge? Knowledge is knowing more about a subject. And there are so many subjects that we need to know more about. Uh, for instance, the book of Proverbs deals with things like how do we deal with children? How do you handle parents? How do you deal with disagreement? How do you deal with wealth? How do you think about work? It's asking all of these questions. And to some extent, we all want to know more about those subjects. And so it says, first of all, that it offers knowledge. You'll learn more about these things and how to interact with them. But second, it says that it gives understanding and words of insight. So what is understanding? Well, understanding here could be also translated discernment. Discernment. In other words, I know these things, but how do I pick? Isn't that the always the gnarly thing all the time? You know, when you're given two good choices, you know, I remember this, you know, years ago, uh, Karen and I just celebrated our 30th anniversary on Tuesday, and uh, we had the opportunity to revisit uh, where we got married and uh, enjoy some time uh, down in the Holy City, and that was really great. And, um, you know, I can remember during that time, uh, this, uh, Karen and I's story, if y'all haven't heard it yet, was a, a whirlwind story. Uh, when I turned 22, I had no girlfriend. I had no hope of a girlfriend. I had almost given up on dating, uh, particularly Christian girls. They were super complicated. And, uh, and so then a month later, I, uh, I met Karen. And 10 months after that, I was married. And the next week, we were heading to seminary. Now, none of that was in my mind when I turned, uh, you know, 22 years old. I thought, well, you know, here I am. And a year later, my whole life has changed. Well, during that process, I had to make a lot of decisions. And thankfully, I had a, a friend and a counselor who was older and wiser than me that helped me think, how do you make a choice between things that are both good and moral? Things like, should you marry this person or should you not marry that person? Well, it would have been biblically correct to do either, but which choice should I make? Should I go to seminary or should I wait? Should I do something else? Well, every vocation that God gives is a good vocation and can reflect God's glory. There are exceptions. If you're sitting there thinking about exceptions to vocations that you cannot have, contract killer, okay, fine. There's one that you cannot have. But more or less, you know, most vocations in some way bring redemption into this world and reflect the glory of God. So how do you make that choice between good thing A and good thing B? Well, you need discernment. You need discernment. You need the ability to, to see kind of between the things to the goal or the purpose uh, between them. And so wisdom offers that. It helps you in discernment. Thirdly, it helps you in wise dealing. We see there at the beginning of verse 3, wise dealing. What does that mean? In your interactions with other people, are you handling things well? We all know that there's foolish dealing where we end up creating conflict, where we end up uh, breaking relationships because we have dealt with another human being in a foolish way. Wise dealing is dealing in such a way that not only are you doing the correct thing in the correct way, but you're doing it in a way that continues to facilitate healthy relationships with other people. Wisdom, he says, this is what it offers. Fourthly, he says that 
it uh, offers, notice he strings these three things together here at the second part of verse 3, righteousness, justice, and equity. Now, righteousness, he said, you know, it's, all these things have to do with one another. In many ways, they're all, these three terms are very related. You know, the way to understand them individually, righteousness is conformity to a standard. So when we think about righteousness, we're saying that I am conforming in a way that's appropriate. Now, of course, because as I said, it's, you know, the, the presupposition of these Proverbs is the covenant between God and the people of God in the Old Testament Israel, the law, you know, conforming to the law would have been part of the understanding. So how do we conform to the law? Part of the way we do it is by growing, by listening to this wise instruction, and we'll grow in that. Second, he talks about justice. Justice, uh, you know, to think about it, is uh, doing what's proper. Doing what's proper. In other words, what is proper in this situation? When we, right now, our, our world is talking about justice. You know, it's talking about getting justice for people who have less or have been disadvantaged or have been oppressed. How do we do that? Well, we do what's proper. What's right to do for someone who's been oppressed or disadvantaged or is being taken advantage of? Well, you help them. You give them aid. What's proper to do when someone's been an offender, when they've done something terrible and wrong? It's to correct them. It is to uh, punish them if that... if you're the state or whatever. The, and so all of these terms are about what is proper in this situation, you know. And that's why whenever you think of the, the graphic image of justice, what do you think of? You know, I think of the statue where there's a woman and she's got scales in her head, hand and her eyes are blindfolded. And what, what that means is, you know, it's about whether it balances or not, whether it's proper not about who you are, or how much money you have, or your advantages or disadvantages. Are we doing what's proper in this situation? But thirdly, it talks about equity. Now, equity uh, can sometimes mean fairness, but here in, in the Bible, it often means pleasing. In other words, it's something that is, uh, you know, what you act in such a way that it is pleasing to other people, that your behavior is pleasing. Now, uh, you know, when I grew up, you know, my, my, my mother and other women in my life, uh, believe it or not, there wasn't just one, would often say, you should be ashamed of yourself. You know, whenever they said that, I probably had not been using equity. You know, I had not been acting in a, in a way that was pleasing uh, to the people I should have been acting that way toward. And so am I acting in that way? Now, that's an amazing course description. Knowledge, you know, discernment, you know, being able to deal with others well, you know, being able to, to, to pursue that which is fitting and proper and pleasing. I mean, that is what wisdom offers. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a student in the university and there was a class that I could take that was going to give me all of these things I would enroll, especially if I had a spare elective, you know, that I could use for that. This is an enticing invitation uh, that the writer here gives, right? But we need to know whether it's for somebody like me. When you think back to that course catalog and you look through, you would always look, was there a prerequisite I need? Is this, is this for people like me? Can I just jump into this class? You know, or do I need to do something else first? And so the writer here actually tells us who is wisdom for? And he, he talks about three different categories of people. We see that 
uh, there in verse 4 through 6. First of all, he says it gives prudence to the simple. Now, when he talks about the simple here, he's not talking about the mentally inferior. He's not talking about someone who is, who is uh, mentally challenged in some way. What he means is someone liable to fall into traps and pits, someone who is gullible. You know, that's what he, that's what he means. And it's fascinating, I think, that young people today are probably more afraid of being duped than they are of most things, you know? And I think social media has kind of added to that pressure, like never be embarrassed, never be caught out thinking something is great when clearly the, the, the theme on social media is that, it, that it's terrible, you know? In other words, make sure you're in tune with what other people uh, approve of or acknowledge and that sort of thing. And, and this is very helpful. Well, when we live like that, then we are living like someone who is simple, according to Proverbs. I'm not, again, I'm not calling you mentally deficient. I'm just saying when you think that way, you tend to fall into traps. And during the book of Proverbs, we'll see many times where it talks about being careful about your, the company that uh, you hang out with when you're young because it can get you into trouble. Well, now, it used to be that, you know, it's funny, when I first started uh, doing ministry, your company just used to be a handful of people that you hung out with on the bus or played with, you know, in the neighborhood. And now your company could be millions of people that you follow and like and spend time scrolling through their posts. You know, your community is much bigger, which is why we need wisdom. The person who's liable to fall into the pit or the trap needs to listen to these words. But secondly, it says that it's for the young. It gives knowledge and discretion to the youth. Now, when we think of the youth, how old do you think that is? I mean, certainly youth is a baby, you know. They have to be taught everything, right? You know, they learn so fast. I mean, they're really impressive. I mean, everybody here, right? has had the genius child, right? Because they all seem like geniuses. If you've ever been around a kid, it's, I mean, one day they're born, they can do nothing for themselves. They can't even eat. I always love that. Young moms always say, well, they're still learning to eat. I'm like, I bet they'll figure it out, you know? And so they, they can't even eat, you know? So they, we have to teach them how to eat at the beginning. And then before long, they're talking two years, you know how long I tried to learn a foreign language? You know, as a matter of fact, I tried to learn like five, you know. So I am a functional illiterate in French, German, Spanish, Greek, and Hebrew, you know. And some people wonder about English as well. But, you know, I took all of those languages, and I could never master any of them. But by the time a kid is three, they've mastered the language. And, mom and moms, dads, aunts, uncles, you know, just friends are like, they're a genius, right? But the point is they still lack wisdom, which is why parents have to use this two-letter word over and over in a young child's life. No. Now, I don't know that it still exists, but when my parent, when I was a kid, uh, or excuse me, when my children were little, I, I do time warp every now and then, but I'm back. And uh, when my children were little, there was a parenting philosophy that said you'd never say no to your children. And if it still exists, you know, then I will make a comment about that later. Uh, 
months later. But, uh, you know, it said, no, you never say no, you say yes, but. And I'm just imagining in my mind how that works with a toddler. You know, you know, they're about to stick the fork in the outlet. And you say, yes, you can do that. I mean, what? You say, yes, you can do that if I run to the circuit box and turn it off. I mean, under what circumstance can you do that? I mean, it's not, there's just, yes, but just doesn't cover it. You know, and so we say no. Why? Because a young person, even though they're curious, which is why they're growing in knowledge so quickly, they're interacting with the environment around them. They're just like, what does that hole do? And they have no idea that it's connected, you know, to 110 volts of dangerous electricity. And you don't want them to learn that experientially. You want to teach them the wisdom of that, right? So, but when we think about young, we think of little kids. Biblically speaking, the young is really an open-ended concept. As a matter of fact, you were counted a man when you a man in the Israeli society when you were probably around 20, but you couldn't become a priest until you were 30. Why was that? Because you were still a youth. You know, youth extended sometimes even past 30. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to Timothy, don't look don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. Timothy, Timothy was around 30, a little bit over 30. And he said, you're, you're a youth. In other words, wisdom is good for youths of all ages, is what I'm saying, the young. And so, you know, it's funny in our culture, we often are quick to say things like, the, the, you know, 60 is the new 40. You know, we always want to be young in our culture. But that's, and that's good if it means that I always want to be open to learning more, you know. And thirdly, it says that wisdom is for the wise. Verse 5, the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtains guidance. And this is very important, because here he's saying it's not just for the people who don't have wisdom, it's for the people who have it. Wisdom is something that builds upon itself. Even as I learn it, even as I grow in it, there's still more to know. And that's very important in the church. Because over years of ministry, I've often had people come up to me and they've said, you know, I'm bored. I don't think there's anything else to learn. And uh, I, I always, my first question is, so tell me about how you're applying everything you've learned in your life. You know, and most likely they're, they're not. Well, I know they're not. The only person who perfectly applied God's word in his life was Jesus. You know, and uh, so I know it. So in other words, the wise can always continue to learn about how to live their life. And part of the problem is as we get older, we forget some of the wisdom we learned when we were younger, and it's good to keep on learning. In other words, wisdom is something that is a lifetime continuing education process. And that's, that's helpful for us to remember. So no matter where you are in this room, whether you're the youngest or whether you're the oldest, which I'm not going to point at, or anything, I probably am the oldest, and uh, then we can always grow in wisdom. But we need to understand what we're building on. So we've talked about the sort of the class description. This is what this wisdom offers, a class of wisdom offers. We talked about who the appropriate person in the class is. But thirdly, we want to make sure you understand what the foundation of an instruction on wisdom is. And we really see that in verse 7. Most commentators talk about verse 7 as the theme of the book, you know. And you can see even in the 
in the English Standard Version, it, I didn't do it necessarily in the, in the bulletin, but it's set apart as a paragraph of its own. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That statement is the key to understanding all of wisdom. And, but what does this mean, the fear of the Lord? One writer says it this way, it's shrinking back in fear, drawing close in awe. Shrink, you know, I think too often in the Christian world, we are timid about fear because we are so quick to say it's not actual fear. Well, there needs to be some actual fear involved in that, you know. And here, here's why I know that. Uh, Brian Habig, who's a pastor in Greenville, is a, a great pastor. If you love to listen to different preachers, I, I would certainly encourage you to listen to him. Uh, back in December, he was preaching a sermon on the fear of the Lord. And he said, you know, it's fascinating that the earth and mountains and sea and rivers all know to get out of the way when God comes around. And yet Christians often say, oh no, fear, it doesn't mean fear. And you say, well, what am I talking about? Well, when the people of Israel went across the Red Sea, the Lord's presence came in and the waters divided. The same thing happened when the people of God crossed the Jordan River. God, the, the presence of God came in and the waters heaped up. God comes down on the mountain to teach, uh, to teach the people and make a covenant with the people of Israel. And the whole earth trembles. The mountain shook. So much so, the people are like, even though we are behind the yellow line, we're going to back up a little bit further. Uh, you know, no, no. In other words, the earth itself knows you quake when God is present. And that is important. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was entering into Jerusalem the week before he was about five days before he was crucified, and people were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The religious leaders said, man, you've got to quiet, quiet down these people because they're just making a fuss. And he said, I'm telling you, if they were silent, the rocks would cry out. What was he saying is the presence of God is coming into Jerusalem and the earth would shake if proper rejoicing wasn't given. In other words, God is fearful in the sense of his power and magnitude. Haven't you ever had that experience when you've come up to something that didn't mean you any harm, but was big and loud and strong or heavy, and you said, I'm afraid. I know I'm safe in a way, but I'm also appropriately afraid. God, there should be some tremble. There should be that shrinking back in fear, but there needs to be a drawing close in awe. We see these two things married together over in the Psalms. In Psalm 33, um, in verse 18, uh, we read this. The psalmist says, Psalm 33, 18, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love. You see that? Here these two ideas are married. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, that have an appropriate regard for Him, who don't treat Him lightly. But those same people are, are described as those who hope in his steadfast love. To me, I think that's what C.S. Lewis was trying to get at in his children's stories in Narnia when he talked about Aslan, you know, and he, he would constantly say that Aslan wasn't safe or tame. He, he's, no, he's not, he's, not a, he's not safe, but he's good. And here this is what the psalmist is getting at. 
fearing the Lord means that I, the only way I can approach Him is because I believe in His hesed, His steadfast love. And this allows me to draw near to Him. When we think about the fear of the Lord and wisdom, we need to understand, one writer says it this way, it's like, you know, when you think about uh, how the alphabet is in order to be able to read and write, or you think about musical notes, when you're going to play or sing, you need those notes. Or if you think about numerals, if you want to do math, that the fear of the Lord is like the alphabet, the notes, and the numbers. It is absolutely the foundational guiding principle. It's not something you learn and then you move on from. Can you imagine a musician who says, I am just so beyond notes, you know? Or the person writing a college essay who says, I prefer not to use the alphabet. Of course, that's ludicrous to even think of. Because you can't do it. You simply can't do it. And you can't know wisdom without the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the guiding principle of the whole thing. And this is very important. I want us to think about this for a second. Because we're in a world today that is trying to deal with a lot of issues. What what do we do about an unbelievably contagious disease that has cost the lives of hundreds of thousands of people around the world. You know, what do we do about a country that is still dealing with uh, racial injustice and inequity that has been going on since the beginning of our country? How do we deal with these things? Well, the way the world tries to deal with it is to simply make moral codes. You know, we're going to say this is right and this is wrong. And that's a simplistic way of doing it, and it never works. It never works. I mean, have you noticed how much self-righteousness there is in the world right now? You know, there is self-righteousness. Let's just list a few things. There's self-righteousness about whether or not you've changed your Facebook profile picture to put a banner up, either about staying at home or about justice for those who are disadvantaged, for African Americans. Uh, There is... uh, Uh, self-righteousness about whether you are wearing a mask and when you're wearing a mask, how you're wearing a mask. It's not good enough to wear a mask. You can't have it hanging off your face. You've got to have it securely fastened. And if you don't and you're in the right place, people will tell you about it or they'll post on your neighborhood Facebook page, right? You know, there was someone out with a mask, right? We are self-righteous about whether you've done enough or said enough uh, about racial injustice. And while some of these things are helpful, making them moral issues in the sense of you have to do this and you don't do that is the problem because that moral situation changes by the day. You know, what was morally right to do two months ago is morally wrong to do now. And, it, and you know why? Because there's no wisdom. Wisdom says, how do I apply a central, absolute truth to an ever-changing situation? And it's because there's no fear of the Lord. But you see, humanity has been rejecting the, the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom since the garden. If you go back to the garden, which, to be honest, I don't think you can have a robust, robust understanding of life now or uh, the gospel without understanding what happened to human beings at the beginning. Human beings, man and woman, were made 
in God's image. They were perfect. They were without sin. They perfectly reflected the glory of God in this world. They had the fear of the Lord, and they were wise. But a serpent came along in chapter 3 of Genesis and tempted the woman, saying many different things, you know, suggesting that God was holding out on them, tempting her to not depend upon the fear of the Lord as the foundation for her life, but to basically be independent, to depend simply on herself. And if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, when the woman makes the decision to take the fruit from the tree that was forbidden in the middle of the garden, it says in the scriptures that she saw that the, the fruit was, uh, looked beautiful and that the tree was good for making one wise. In other words, she was seeking wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. And the fall comes after that. And that's fundamentally the issue. It's if we don't understand this as a foundation, then we can't understand anything truly. I really see it whenever I watch, you know, these uh, cool science shows. And I love them. I still love them, even though I sort of have to have a filter. Uh, one that's been out, I've been watching on Disney Plus, is uh, the One Strange Rock, which is fascinating because it's really narrated by, well, one Will, Will Smith, who's the Fresh Prince. And, you know, that's just great. Uh, but secondly, it has all these astronauts who have spent a lot of time on, on the space station talking about different scientific elements of the Earth. And what's fascinating is that when you really push them, they get into sort of mythical fantasy land about why there's life here, why we haven't already been burned up. I mean, they always kind of are like, you know, you can kind of tell they're like, I'm not really sure why, why it worked. I mean, we kind of have a theory, you know, we think it works. You know, and my point is, all of that wisdom, as much information as they have accumulated, if it's not founded on the fear of the Lord, then it ultimately can't produce wisdom. It can create knowledge. You know more stuff, but how does it connect? What does it mean? What do you do with it? Well, that takes wisdom. And that's why the fear of the Lord is important, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a, a chemist, whether you are a historian, whether you're a writer, understand that enables you to know anything. And that's why that presuppositional truth is so important, that without it, then, there, then we're always going to be off course, you know. And this is what the writer is saying. Well, how do we find it? Well, thankfully, you know, we, we didn't have to draw close to this awesome, fearful God. He drew close to us. Not only did he do that in, his, in the Old Testament through the tabernacle, which was a gracious accommodation to the people of God, that the priest could represent him in there. But he ultimately comes close to us in Jesus. We see that in a couple of places in Isaiah 11, a prophecy about the Messiah who would come. Uh, in verse 2, talking about this one that will come, it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Do you hear that? This one who's going to come will have the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. These things always go together. And here he's describing Jesus who would come 700 years later. That God is going to bring one who will bring this to you. The awesome 
fear of the, God, of the Lord fleshed in humanity. And that's what the, the birth of Jesus is all about. That the wisdom of God becoming a man and the person of Jesus. We see Paul say it this way in Colossians chapter 2. Uh, in verse 3, describing Jesus Christ, it says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if we want to grow in wisdom, we need to have as a foundation the fear of the Lord. We need to have as our helper the presence of Christ in our life. It is okay in the middle of a chemistry exam to say, Jesus, help me. Because he's the one who all of the world and the universe was created through Jesus. He knows more about chemistry than you and I could ever know. And he has wisdom. He is wisdom. And he offers it to those who believe and follow him. But I don't want us to leave without thinking about the end of this theme. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is there as a warning at the beginning of this book. There is much to be learned in wisdom. But there's always going to be the fool who says, I know enough. I've learned enough. I've acquired enough. Or I'll just figure it out on myself. Here, this calls it a fool, which is a really negative statement. I know we use that expression sort of casually in our world, you know. And uh, in the Bible, this is a very strong expression. It is a slanderous term in many ways. You know, Jesus says, you can't, don't call your brother a fool, you know, or you'll be in danger of hell. I mean, this is a strong word, but it says you're a fool when you try to do it on your own. When you say, I can handle it. And I don't know about you, but even though I know I can't be self-dependent, I often leak back into it, you know, like 50 times a day, you know. God invites us to keep learning wisdom and depend upon Him through Jesus Christ. I think as we look through this, we're going to be encouraged, we're going to be stimulated to think, and preferably we'll know more about God through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You and thank You for how kind and good You are to us. Oh, thank You, wisdom, for coming and being a man in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord Jesus, You are wisdom. And you are grace. And you are love. And you invite us to yourself that we might not only know more about you, but know more about this world in which we live, that we might have wisdom to live and be for your glory, we pray in Christ's name.